This episode of Dear Hank and John is brought to you by Blue Land. Did you know that uh, about 5 billion, billion? That's a de- I checked that because that's a lot. Plastic hand soap and cleaning bottles are thrown away every year. And if that's not bad enough, most cleaning formulas are 90% water, which is heavy. We're shipping around all this water using fuel when we don't have to. Every year, Americans throw away 25% more trash from Thanksgiving to New Year. This year, maybe turn the New Year's resolution into action that makes a difference by switching to Blue Land. Blue Land is on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic by reinventing cleaning essentials to be better for you and the planet with the same powerful clean you're used to. It's a simple idea. They have refillable cleaning products. They have a nice design. I have them in my home. It looks nice on your counter. You fill the reusable bottles with water, drop in the Blue Land tablets, wait for them to dissolve, and you never have to grab bulky, heavy cleaning supplies on your grocery run ever again. And refills, because they're small and you don't have to ship a bunch of water across the country, starts at just $2.25. You can even set up a subscription or buy in bulk for additional savings. From cleaning sprays to hand soap, toilet bowl cleaner, and laundry tablets, Laundry tablets, everybody, you know what I mean. All Blue Land products are made with clean ingredients that you can feel good about. Blue Land is trusted in over a million homes, including, yeah, mine. Blue Land has a special offer for listeners right now. You can get 15% off your first order by going to blueland.com slash dearhank. You won't want to miss it. Blueland.com slash dearhank for 15% off. Again, blueland.com slash dearhank to get 15% off. To Dear Hank and John. Or as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a podcast where two brothers answer your questions, give you DBS advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. John! Yeah. yeah. I got a copy of your book, but it's a special copy of your book. It's it's about same width as all of your other books, but it's about eight times eight times taller. And mm-hmm. I got it so I could walk around, people can ask me about it, and 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 then I can say it's a long story. <laughs> And that's my joke. <laughs> it's a real high quality joke, Hank. Thanks for bringing that to the podcast. I'll take any form of Anthropocene reviewed advertisement you want to deliver. And so I, I accept it and I embrace it and I am grateful for it. And thanks to everybody for their incredibly kind responses to the Anthropocene reviewed book. I'm so glad that it's out in the world and that the reviews have been so lovely. And I'm also just honestly hugely relieved. But that's the been, that's the main emotion when you start yeah. when people start reading it. You're like, okay, so uh, you don't <laughs> people don't hate this. Yeah, I was also very worried that people were gonna like meme rate it on a five star scale because it's a book of that makes fun of the five star scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but no, people have been very, instead been very nice. In in fact, it's my highest rated uh, book on Goodreads. So that's nice. That's it's nice. My, it's my best book, according to data aggregation systems <laughs> that I consistently yeah. lampoon throughout the book. Yes. Hank. <laughs> All the stars. I want to get to... What if, what if instead of uh, counting the average number of stars, we just counted the total number of stars? And... That, that would be great. It would be like, this yeah. book has 7 million stars. I do kind of do that. Not that many people like it. But almost everybody's read it. It's called the when, Scarlet Letter. <laughs> when I when I am curious about it, this is like the only way I know of to like look and see overall how well a book did 
is the number of reviews it has on Goodreads, which of course is deeply imprecise because there are some authors whose audiences spend a lot of time on Goodreads and and some who don't. Like I don't imagine that there's a ton of like Da Vinci Code readers who are like super dedicated to Goodreads. I don't know. There might be, but I agree with you that it is not a perfect uh, measure of the Mm -hmm. popularity of a book, but I also inevitably use it. And I also occasionally glance at Goodreads to see, you know, how, how people are rating the book. But I try to remember in that process that it's it's like an inherently ludicrous enterprise to try yes. to distill any reading experience down into a single data point. That what? said, I can't help myself. Um, <laughs> I, I've looked, John, and the Da Vinci Code only has two million ratings on Goodreads. So merely two million. It turns out I don't understand why people use this website or who its users are. Now, it only has 48,000 reviews, which is a very low rating to review rate, which makes me think a lot of people have gone through and been like, oh, yeah, I did read that at some point. Right. Because that's apparently what we do as people. Or even maybe a bunch of people rated it who didn't read it because you don't actually have to like Uh, pass a a pop quiz to (laughs) to rate a book. To leave the review. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a good point, John. Hank, before we get to answering questions from our listeners, which I am excited to do, I just I feel like we need to talk about the the sneeze issue. We've done so many bits on this yeah. podcast over the last 17,000 years. Uh-huh. And in a way, the podcast, it, it, it's just a bunch of bits stitched together into a quilt that makes absolutely no sense. But the sneeze thing uh-huh. has captured the imaginations well, of not just our listeners, but also of myself more than any other bit ever. You still thinking about so, it? I'm thinking about, I think about, I'll tell you when I think about it, Hank, every time I sneeze. Well, here's every time I sneeze, I think about the bit. And, and for those of you who didn't listen, it was a question that came in from someone whose allergist, a medical doctor, had said... <laughs> It is not normal to sneeze. It is never normal to mm-hmm. sneeze. I never, I never sneeze. sneeze. Um, well, here's a weird thing, John. I also think that I would think about this every time I sneeze. But I haven't. I don't know that I've sneezed. <laughs> I don't know that I I've have. sneezed in the last two weeks. Well, we got an I'm, amazing. I think I might be a no, no non-sneezer. I think <laughs> I might be a never sneezer, just like this. I think it might not be normal to sneeze. Yeah. Like when? Yeah. What? Like when have I sneezed? And then, like every other never sneezer, when you do sneeze, you're gonna say to yourself, "Ah, that didn't really happen." <laughs> and that wasn't a that wasn't a what proper a- sneeze. We got this wonderful email okay. in from Jess, who writes, "Dear John and Hank." I'm not sure if this information is useful to you, but here's a data point regarding sneezing. I sneezed 566 times in 2020. I kept track. Wow. I'm doing it again this year, and so far I'm at 190 sneezes in 2021. This tracks well with last year, as I had 200 sneezes on June 1st of 2020. I'm a fall allergy person, so it pe- picks up in the second half of the year. One one thing that may skew this data is the fact that I sneeze when I see bright lights. Mm-hmm. That doesn't skew the data. I think a lot of people sneeze when they see bright lights. That is the kind of high-quality, data-driven email that I love (laughs) to receive. Thank you, Jess, for confirming that at least for this person, it is normal to sneeze up to 566 times in a single calendar year. John, there is a possibility that I think is unexamined here, which is that the doctor who thinks that sneezing isn't normal isn't 
denying their own sneezes, isn't confused about a, what about what a sneeze is, but just is very forgetful. Oh, because like, do you remember your sneezes? I don't remember. Like, I do now because it, every single time I sneeze, <laughs> I think of a doctor somewhere saying sneezing isn't normal. I never sneeze. Never sneeze. It's the it's the absolutism, the certainty that I find uh-huh. so shocking. I never sneeze. Like, I never sneeze. I I would have thought that that sentence had never been spoken in human history. <laughs> John, we also got an email from Missy about a real, it was a related question who asks, dear Hank and John, I just listened to the episode. You guys are talking about a doctor who said it wasn't normal to sneeze. I have a rare condition that makes me unable Mm -hmm. to burp. (laughs) And whenever I tell people this, I know someone who has that. They try to catch me burping when no one is looking, which doesn't happen because I have a condition that makes me unable to burp. I just kind of wanted to tell you guys that, but I guess that I do have a question. So do you guys burp? That's, not really normal if you do. <laughs> Missy. I had a... Yeah. Yeah, maybe the doctor has a condition oh, whereby the, the doctor, doctor can't, can't sneeze, sneeze. and doesn't know that they are the one that has the problem. Exactly. Exactly. And so, like, pursued a career as an allergist because they grew up not sneezing. And, and just being like, and what is at, wrong with all of you? Looking at a sneezy world and just being like, oh, I've got to treat this epidemic of sneezing that I see everywhere except in my own life. So the condition, I had a, I had a friend who never burped and I was like, hey, what, what? he was like, I just don't. I, I refuse to. <laughs> he wouldn't burp even though he could. Oh. And uh, and he, I guess he just farted more, hmm. I guess. Like it does get out eventually the other way if you don't burp because it is a thing that, that does happen where people don't or can't burp and the, the swallowed air goes, goes out the butt. I burp a lot. So- me too. There you go. Everybody's different. I burp less now that I've stopped drinking soda. Be- I and bet. it's kind of a bummer because I do love that soda burp. Yeah. Well, all I know for sure is that sneezing is never normal. Never, ever, ever. Yeah. And that for the rest of my life, whenever I sneeze, I will imagine a person in a white lab coat saying to an actual patient of theirs, yeah. sneezing is never normal. I never sneeze. Same with pooping, by the way. <laughs> Not normal. Never normal. Never normal. Never normal. <laughs> it's almost like John, the doctor the doctor being like, you shouldn't have a body. Bodies are disgusting. <laughs> Having a body is not normal. You should be a disembodied mind. It's like, so there's this thing your body is perfectly able to do, causes no problems, uh, but it is a huge problem. Yeah. John, I have a question that is very definitely for you, and I okay. am excited by it, though I don't know I don't know ultimately that we will reach satisfaction. It's from Monica who asks, Dear Hank and John, I just saw a vintage ad that read, Try Dr. Pepper Hot. Oh yeah. Now I have never once considered drinking soda pop hot. Were there other sodas that encouraged this type of behavior? More importantly, have either of you ever drank Dr. Pepper diet or otherwise hot? If not, can you and report back? Thank you. A little bit of Monica. First of all, for a second, I thought this was a variety of Dr. Pepper that was spicy. No, no. So this is a thing that longtime Dr. Pepper CEO Foots Clements was obsessed with. So he would notice wh- that- wh- how, When was he CEO? For like 40 years until okay, but no longer the 80s no okay. he's he's currently deceased and with um his 
Dr. Pepper Money founded the Dr. Pepper Museum and Free Enterprise Institute, which is a (laughs) museum devoted both to the history of Dr. Pepper and the importance of free market economics. But anyway, (laughs) Foots Clements (laughs) noticed that sales of Dr. Pepper would dip in the winter because people don't uh-huh. need as much of an ice-cold, refreshing drink, especially in the South. And yep. And for a long time, Dr. Pepper was a mostly regional phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so he was like, all these people are out here drinking hot tea and hot yep. cider and uh-huh. hot chocolate. Uh-huh. We need to Look. be selling hot Dr. Pepper. Now that you put it this way. And this is Dr. Pepper that you put into a kettle. And it's actually, I have had it. It it tastes <laughs> like hot Dr. Pepper. It, it doesn't have yeah, much yeah. in the way of bubbles. Yeah. Uh-huh. So that's a weird uh-huh. taste profile. But I mean, hot cider also doesn't have much in the way yep. of bubbles and is yep. sweet and a little gross. And it, it has uh-huh. done yep. fairly well over the centuries. And so he really tried to make hot Dr. Pepper happen. And of course, it didn't happen because uh, one thing Americans don't really want is hot Dr. Pepper. <laughs> like, yeah. You, you know, like like advertising can, can create right. a market for a lot of things, but it cannot really create a market for flat, hot Dr. Pepper. Did you try it with a lemon slice? Because they, they've all got lemon slices. Every yes. picture I'm seeing has a lemon slice on top. Yeah. So like Foots Clements drank hot Dr. Pepper all the time with a lemon slice right. and he said it was better than tea. And his his concept <laughs> was that like the place that tea had in the American South would become a place that Dr. Pepper had. Ice cold I mean, Dr. That's Pepper a, that, in the summer worth, and hot, yeah. hot Dr. Pepper in the winter. It's worth taking the risk on that. Like if you can become the new tea, become the new yeah. tea. Yeah, I know. But he couldn't. But as often happens in the world of a free market, Hank, <laughs> the people said no. no. I tried it and I don't want it. Oh man, I I there are so many there are there are times I have seen where the, the leader of the organization says this is going to be huge, and everyone says, You are wrong, and they say, I am yeah. the visionary, that is my job. Right. And then they are yeah. wrong. And it's like, well, yeah. I mean, I, it was their yeah. job to be the visionary. Yeah. They were just wrong. Yeah. And to be fair, like Foots Clements c- continued to lead Dr. Pepper to greater yeah. and greater it's, heights. It, and yeah. today it is the only major American soda that exists independent of the Pepsi and Coca-Cola corporations. Yeah. So like he succeeded uh, in a way. It just he didn't succeed with hot Dr. Pepper. I've wanted for a while to make a Vlogbrothers video where I try like regional weird mixes of drinks. Like in some places they put the salted peanuts in their Coke. Yeah. And and like a hot Dr. Pepper would be fun. I think you should do that. So I think I'm going to do that sometime. Uh, it's very it's sort of like very 2014 vibes yeah. of, of like YouTube. Yeah. But like I like that era. Me too. By the way, if you want to learn much more about the history of Dr. Pepper and the astonishing life of Foots Clements and the Dr. Pepper Museum and Free Enterprise Institute, check out my book, The Anthropocene Reviewed, which contains a chapter on Diet Dr. Pepper. <laughs> Does it include stuff about hot Dr. Pepper? No, I, I wrote a bunch of it, but I cut it because I, I was like, wow. this is not relevant to the overall argument of the piece. One of the pleasures of writing the Anthropocene Reviewed book was was writing like an extra 
you know, 110,000 words that didn't go into the book. That's like my favorite part of writing in general, cutting. <laughs> John, I've got another question that I feel like you would be good at answering. It's from Jesse who asks, Dear Hank and John, what are mausoleums for? I've always thought they were either tombs or fancy garden sheds for cemetery upkeep. Mm. Jesse, which one of those is it, John? <laughs> I mean, you know all about graves. Yeah, I, I think it's mostly tombs. But now that you mention that, it seems plausible to me. Like if you've got to have a rake somewhere... Why not have it in like a fake mausoleum? Nobody's going to look that closely. It's true. It's true. Have the groundskeeping thing just look like, except that that's like more expensive than a normal shed, I'd imagine. Yeah. Yeah. That might be an issue. How do you, so, so I've always kind of wondered, can you get into a mausoleum? Depends on the mausoleum. Some of them are public to anyone. Yeah, a lot of them have doors and then like a tiny little bench thing on the inside if you really want to sit up close to the graves. But I, I mean, I've always felt like that's for family, you know? Sure. In fact, Sarah and I were yeah. just walking through Crown Hill Cemetery, my my favorite cemetery in America, home to more dead vice presidents than any other location on earth. And we we went on a walk there on our anniversary because, mm-hmm. you know, that's the kind of party we enjoy. <laughs> And we we came to the mausoleum of Eli Lilly, the uh, drug company oh, executive. Yeah, sure. I've no, I know that. I thought that that was two people. I thought there was an Eli and a Lilly. <laughs> no, no, no. There's just one Colonel <laughs> Eli Lilly. There's a lot of people name him just after their last name, not Eli. Yeah, yeah. So Eli's like, take the whole thing. Right. So the Eli Lilly mausoleum was erected uh, by his widow, and it has like a few uh, tombs in it, I guess. Mm-hmm. But it was. It was really lovely. I really there there was something about it I really liked, which is that most of the time mausoleums are like you know so and so lived from such and such to such such and such beloved father and in mm-hmm. founder of the Eli Lilly company or whatever. But this one was much more personal than that. It it, it was I erected this mausoleum uh, in loving memory of and then the people and I was like that's so much better. Mm. To acknowledge the right. perspective and place of the mourner, mm-hmm. who is you know actually the person that the mausoleum exists for in the end, like yeah. it's not really about the dead person. Uh-huh. It's really about the you know the people who who want to have a place to come and visit and think about their uh, their loved ones. And I just thought that was really lovely. So yeah, I like I like a mausoleum. For the record, I personally, as you know, Hank, do not particularly want a mausoleum, although it's not about me. It's about, you know, it's about whoever comes after whoever, you know, it's not the main thing that I want, of course, is to be buried just above (laughs) James Whitcomb Riley at the top of Crown Hill. (laughs) Oh, God. Um, Do you know why it's called a mausoleum? I don't. Because there was a guy, his name was Mausolos, and he died and he was a king. Hmm. And I think probably Greece. Mm hmm. (laughs) <laughs> sounds Greek. Sounds That's Greek. a guess. And um, and and his uh, wife and sister, uh, not two different people. Oh, built a really big building for him. Hmm. Uh, and then it fell over. Oh, so it was like earthquake. I erected this mausoleum in honor of my husband and brother. <laughs> yeah, Mausolos. Mausolos. And, then, and, and it was so big. That everybody was like, wow, any grand structure that contains a tomb will be called a mausoleum. Oh. And now they tend to contain more than one, but the original one was just him. It was just Mausolos all, all by himself. Hmm. 
Uh, and now there is a ruin that you can go and see, but it did fall over in an earthquake. And to be fair, they it will- It was very big. And to be fair, they will all fall over because such is the nature of time. Yeah. I mean, the nice thing about the way they built the pyramids, is it's hard for them to fall over. They can't really fall over, but they can erode away slowly. Yeah. Something's still going to happen to them eventually. Yeah. I think all the time, we, there's like a giant M on the mountain yeah. here, which is a thing we do in Western states. Yeah. Or maybe other places do. I don't know. There's a giant concrete M on the side of the mountain. And I I go up there because it's it's like a hike that everybody does. And you can see that as time has gone on, like the front of the M is like eroding away. And I'm like, mm. eventually this M's going to fall down the mountain. Yeah. Like it's just going to, it's like, like if we did nothing, it would just fall slowly fall down and break into a bunch of little pieces. And even like now, if you're when you're hiking up, you can you like start to see little painted pieces of cement as you're getting close to the end because mm. they're already falling off. Right. And yeah, human timescales are so weird compared yeah. to geologic timescales. Like uh-huh. the other day we were driving in the car listening to the Indy 500 qualifying and the announcer mentioned that it was the 105th or whatever running of the Indy 500. Mhm. And in the back, Alice was like, do you think they're going to have like 500 runnings of the Indy 500? And I was like, uh. probably not, you know, like, Oof. but it's a great question. Yeah. And I think that like, you know, the most likely outcome is that people lose interest in the sport, which happens. Yeah, it happens. All, I mean, yeah, like, there used to be like, uh, you know, like uh, chariot races, and those aren't big anymore. <laughs> no, no. We could we could be having our like twenty two hundredth consecutive Roman chariot race. Yeah, uh, but but we aren't. So yeah. Ooh, what's the longest running sports tournament? Oh, it's got to. Can I make a guess? Yeah. Uh, the Kentucky Derby. The Kentucky Derby is close. Okay. What is it? And I don't like. I don't buy this honestly. So this, yeah. I've looked this up. I don't buy it because all of these things are like in England or America. So I'm like, <laughs> you're probably yeah. missing. So you probably got a narrow focus. Right. But the year first awarded for the Carlisle Bells was 1599. And the Carlisle Bell is a horse race in Carlisle, Cumbria, England. Oh, okay. All right. That's a very old sporting event. That's an old sporting event. So good on them for keeping it going all this time. And I don't know that they've they've never missed a year. I bet you they've missed some years in that time. But like, hey, yeah, we'll give it we'll give it to them. I mean, I hope they've missed some years because I, for one, like <laughs> feel like the, the year like 1937 to 1945 was not a time to be like, let's all have our horse race here in Carlisle doing some fun horse races. <laughs> Oh, God. Hank, I want to ask you this question from Edmund, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I'm watching a movie about aliens, and it seems to me the perfect step one in a first contact situation would be to present the aliens with a gift to show them that we can be peaceful Mm -hmm. and that we are willing to share resources. Okay. Edmund, I don't want to disagree with the premise of your question, but I think that we have shown (laughs) very little evidence for the fact that we are peaceful and willing to share resources. But I... I, I agree that is that is the version of ourselves that we should try to present yes. to the aliens. Yep. What would be the best types of gift and offerings we could provide to the aliens for a first contact meeting? Alien pumpkins and space penguins, Edmund. Gosh, I really kind of think that anything would be bad. 
Really? I think that giving a physical gift is to an alien might be a little weird because no matter what you're doing, you're going to be trying to sort of embody a lot of different information yeah. and you're not going to be able to do it. So I think like a handshake and a conversation. I think that that is the, that is the thing, that is the gift that we need to give to each other more often. Mm. And the, well, I don't agree about not, handshakes. Not specifically, not specifically the handshake. Yeah. But, but the, just the openness for connection is the gift mm-hmm. because that is, that's the thing that's going to be the most important thing. Mm. And I say this as if this is coming around the corner, like I've I've received an embargoed press release, yeah. which for clarity, I have not. Well, there's so much energy right now around yeah. UFOs oh, yeah. and aliens are already here, mm-hmm. which yeah. I find really interesting. I'm actually, I don't know if this is going to end up being what I write about, but I'm writing about it now for the Anthropocene Reviewed yeah. podcast. I find it really interesting because- it happens periodically. Mm-hmm. It's sort of cyclical. Yeah. Our fascination with aliens, our belief that aliens are already among us, like pops back up. And I think it's because it has so much explaining power. Like in the same way that God has a lot of explaining power, like God can explain a lot of things that are difficult for us to understand. And so can aliens. Did, and did you see my tweet? Uh, no. That's wild. Because I tweeted basically this. I said, uh, last night I tweeted that the reason, I mean, this is now a week ago for you listening, but the reason people like me never think it's aliens is that aliens could explain anything no matter how weird. Yes, In the exactly. unusual but completely expected situation where we really don't know what the what WTF is going on, defaulting to an explanation that could explain anything is lazy. Well, okay. I, I agree with the first part of your tweet. <laughs> I don't think that it's necessarily it's, lazy. It's, I think but I do think that it's um it's a shortcut. Yeah. If it's not carefully considered. Right. And it's also a shortcut to say nothing can explain this except aliens or god or anything else that could explain everything. Right. Well, the thing because is so that the, what you say all, all the things that could explain everything could explain everything. <laughs> yeah, which is the problem because as you said as you have been saying, which I love, we we don't know almost everything. And we it is hard for us to confront that because we don't spend a lot of time thinking about the fact that we don't know almost everything. And and so when we encounter something that's like, we really don't get what's going on here, it's just, I guess the, the problem isn't that it's lazy. It's that it's usually wrong because when we are so confused right. that we're defaulting to an explanation that could explain anything, that means that it's likely that there is something else going on there that's much more specific and that explains just that one thing, not that could explain everything. Yes, there tend to be very few simple, straightforward things that explain lots and lots and lots of stuff. Right. But most things that explain something actually explain one thing. Yes. But occasionally, the thing is, occasionally there are simple ideas that have immense explanatory power, like gravity. Right. Yeah. Like natural selection, where it was like, oh, wow, 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 wow. Yes. That explains a lot. But with both those examples, because it explained a lot, people were immediately like, oh, I'm going to use it to explain a bunch of other things as well that it doesn't explain. (laughs) It's totally true. (laughs) Yeah, it's wild. It's in. And this is this is one of the one of the things that 
happens most in science where science gets stuff really wrong is that there is this extremely powerful new idea and it is really powerful and but then we're not sure the boundary of its power yeah. and so we have to over time to redefine the boundary of its power and realize like oh actually this doesn't explain x very well yeah and there are a few few ways that we can notice that we're doing that while we're doing it before we fully understand that we're doing it yeah like for instance if it reinforces existing power structures yeah, it's I mean, probably wrong. <laughs> it's, almost every time we discover something really big and new, we're like, "Wow, it's amazing how that explains yes. my racism." Right, right. Like, it does an amazing job of explaining all of the ways that I want to feel about people who are different from me. Gravity less so, but still, like, you know, gravity was so exciting uh, when it was, you know, when when. when the underlying ideas were, were first being ex explored in the 17th century that people like Edmund Haley were like, oh, that probably means that there's another Earth inside of Earth. <laughs> and it probably has its own atmosphere. And it probably yeah. has little, little people who look up and see our ground as their <laughs> sky. <laughs> oh God, it's so much fun. I love, I love smart people being wrong, except when it's me, John. Yes. Um, I it recently, um, uh, someone was weed whacking out in my alley, and I was like, "Well, that's not too loud." But now they have turned on a chipper shredder. Oh, and they are feeding trees into it. Yeah. So I'm not sure if like this should be, you know, just the sort of real, like bring the real today. Uh, of the chipper shredder or if we should stop recording because I don't think it's going to stop anytime soon. No, we should just keep going and people are just going to enjoy hearing a chipper sh shredder in the background. Let's bring the real. I have an idea for what we could give aliens other than a handshake and a conversation, which by the way, I think might be the worst thing to give aliens. Like, uh, who are we going to nominate to have the conversation? I don't trust, <laughs> I don't know anyone I would trust to have that conversation. Yeah, we'd have an election. Be like, uh, everybody sort of... <laughs> Oh, oh, yeah, that, that'll work great. That's how we find the <laughs> best diplomats has, is via popular yeah, never, vote. God, we've never made a... <laughs> we've never gotten that wrong before. Okay. What's your idea? What's the, what's the present? I think it should be a periodic table mm. with little examples yeah. of all the elements. I, because I think if we gave them a periodic table with the little examples of all the elements, we'd basically be saying, this is how far we got. I, we're going to lay it on the table. This is the, this is the basics of of where we are. I assume since you're visiting us that that you've yeah. made it a little further, and I just want to kind of give you a sense of what what we got to. I think so. Now I'm now I'm circling back, and I think that we should probably pick like the best album. So I think that maybe we should give give them uh, 1998's mm. uh, Megaphone Speaks for, by Tomoe Shinohara. And just let them sort of rock out for a little bit. Be like, ah, I see what you got for me. And okay. Look, a lot of people are going to disagree with me about that particular choice. Particular, like it, yeah. mostly that no one, no one has any idea what that album is. Yeah. But I think it's the best album. Yeah, I, I. That's another one I don't want to leave up to popular vote. You know, because like. <laughs> Well, I think we'd end up with BTS, and I think that would be fine. Yeah, we probably wouldn't end up with BTS. They, their fans are so well organized, and also their music is good, and I think that would be fine. <laughs> yeah. But that's a really interesting question, and I, I, I think you were a tiny bit flippant with it. What would be the actual album you would give 
to actual aliens. I don't like I think that the, I think the instinct to try and like pick very good music is the wrong instinct. I think that it should be like my first thought is like you got to go with something that everybody's like broadly respected like John and John Coltrane to Love Supreme. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Which is a great album and I think the aliens would be impressed with John Coltrane. A- a- anybody would be. I think that there is a like I agree. But I want, I'd want to find something that doesn't require a lot of like institutional knowledge. Like I think that jazz builds on jazz builds on jazz. And so I'd worry about that. Like, wh- whereas I might be a little bit more like if it is just a really classic pop album. Right. So my argument is that it should be John Coltrane's A Love Supreme. Hank's argument is that it should be, now that's what I call music number seven. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, th- I don't like, know that we could miss by going with one the, of the nouns. The peak, <laughs> the peak, now that's what I call music era. Yeah. Hank wants to do the, he just, Hank wants to do the kids bop version <laughs> of Old Town Road. That's. <laughs> Old Town that's Road what, is a great choice. I, I, no, Old Town Road is a great song, but clearly you've, you haven't heard the kids bop version. <laughs> no, I have heard the kids bop version for some reason, Oren latched onto the kids bop version of Uptown Funk, which is <laughs> not great for my mental health. That's perfect. That's it. That's the one. We're settled. We are we are handing the aliens a compact disc that includes 13 times in a row the Kids Bop version of Uptown Funk. Uptown Funk is a great song. I'm sure Kids Bop, and I know that a lot of Kids Bop uh, producers listen to this podcast, and so I apologize in advance, but y'all know. <laughs> And that I think that will tell the aliens what they really need to know about us. Because, like, look, a, a Love Supreme would tell the aliens who we want to be. Right. The Kids Bop version of Uptown Funk tells the aliens <laughs> who, we, who we are. You know, one of the great things about it is that whatever you give them becomes, like, an instant, forever, like, the most <laughs> yes. iconic object. It's the most and, important and, object of all time. Right, right. And so, and so for that reason, I think it should probably be a, a Furby made of beans. <laughs> <laughs> That's like if I had if I had a choice, yeah. like I don't know, like like it's really about it's 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 it is definitely about the story we're telling about ourselves rather than making a particular impression, and so that's why I'm worried about it because I I worry that whatever story we're telling about ourselves is too simplistic and and very sort of like n- narrow inside of a, a particular culture. So yeah, no, I agree. I would I, I I would be very worried about giving anyone that responsibility. No, it would Ooh, be. It, I got it. I got it. Okay. A dog. <laughs> yeah, that's a great idea, actually. Like a really, yeah. Be like, yeah, we got you a corgi. Just like a good, a good dog. Yeah. The queen loves them. Yeah. And so we got you a corgi. It's named Max. Everybody. Yeah, dogs are distributed across the whole earth. Yeah. People have dogs everywhere. They are good, good fun. Yeah. They bring joy. And uh, yeah. They're and good they're, buddies. You know, they're also ultimately temporary, which might be nice. The other thing about giving a dog to the aliens is that the moment that we like gave Max the Corgi to the aliens, Max the Corgi would walk up to the aliens and be like, all right, so what do you want to know about these weirdos? <laughs> I got the lowdown. We've been uh, we've been tracking them for 250,000 years. Yeah. They are nuts. <laughs> It may, it may, you know, I I think to a certain extent that a, the dog might be one of the greatest human inventions. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know that I would describe it as an invention as such. Oh, yeah, I agree. But with it's you. certainly one of the greatest human 
series of choices. Which is, yeah, that's, wow. What a, wow. That's a way to look at us. It's one of the oldest, best things that we've done. Yeah. It's older than agriculture and maybe mm. better than agriculture. <laughs> well, I don't know if I would say that. I like. <laughs> I don't know, that's a man. dangerous path. I don't know. Well, agriculture prevents a lot of. A I lot know. Of... I'm a big listen. I'm a big fan of agriculture. I love. I I love an economic surplus. Yeah. Believe me. No, I see but what you're saying. I okay. really love dogs. They're good. They bring a lot of joy, John. Yeah, John. I uh, I loved this question. Question number twenty nine. Um, I don't know what they've turned on in the alley now, but it's something else. So it's exciting. You never know. It's from Caitlin who asks, dear Hank and John, who coined the phrase coined the phrase. That's so good. Do you know though? Do you know the answer? I don't, but I do have an interesting story to tell about it. Okay. I, I do know. And it's fascinating. Oh, well, I mean, okay, you go. Tell me what you found, because I did research and I found did not a definitive answer. It is very old. The phrase is extremely oh, yeah. old. And mm-hmm. it's at least as old as the Romans. And the first time we know of it being used was in reference to Augustus, who coined the phrase son of God in Latin by putting the phrase on a coin with a picture of Julius Caesar. I don't know, man. That might be a folk etymology. Uh, I mean, it's completely made up, but I was really, I was, I, I was trying to <laughs> sound confident. Sounds great. Oh, okay. At okay. least it sounded good. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like it sounds a hundred percent like the kind of thing that you would read by a guy who was like, I bet this was the reason. Right. Yeah, it, it does. <laughs> you're right. I should have, I should have dug a little deeper because it sounded too much like somebody else made it up and I read it. Rather than, yeah, you're right. I should. Okay. I'll, I'll use that in the future. My next trick, Hank, is going to be so good. It's going to trick you successfully. But what is, <laughs> what did your research indicate? Because I did none. Okay. Um. Yeah. So, so it just seems like coin is a word that we used for create. Oh. So it wasn't, it wasn't really a phrase that was coined because it was just a thing that people would say they would like things would be made. So coining for creating goes back to creating coins, which were not what we think of as coins. They were the blanks before you stamped something into them. And that word came from the stamp that you would use to stamp something into them. So neither, like the coin was not called the coin, the blank and the stamp were called the coin, but not the final product. Wow. And that comes from like a word for wedge, which is just like the thing that they used to stamp. Hmm. Um, But the earliest known use of coin a phrase or coin the phrase was not that uh, long ago, um, but it was it was from 1848, and it was uh, the phrase "angel of assassination." Oh, was the phrase that was coined. It said we had to find a name which should at once convey the enthusiasm of our feelings toward her, and so we would coin a phrase combining the extreme of admiration and horror, and the term and term her the angel of assassination. Who? So that uh, and that was who's the her. I, do you know who this was? Was Charlotte Corday. Oh, I don't know who that is. Charlotte Corday was the uh, assassin of Jean-Paul Marat, who was the oh, man okay. who uh, made the French Revolution more uh, revolutionary, <laughs> I guess. Probably yeah. Would say it. Um, just more. I think you can stop it more. <laughs> One of the people who made the French Revolution it's, more 
dot, dot, dot. Yeah, he was, <laughs> he had, had a, one of the bellows and he pushed it at the fire. Which, <laughs> yeah, um, that's very good description. <laughs> so, so this was fascinating. I read this whole Wikipedia article um, and I, the story of how she did it is wild. Um, so she was, you know, she was a, a minor aristocrat. She did not believe in the actions of the French Revolution, and she wanted to kill him. And so she knocked on his door, and she said that she had uncovered a plot to. Uh, there was there was like a, a an uprising happening, like a plot to take him and his power structures on. And he said, "Come in and tell me about it." And she stabbed him mm. in the bath. Um, after so he had a skin problem, and so he like went and got in the bath and was oh. like, "Tell me of this plot against uh, our our uh, against me and our movement while I goals. while I bathe." And she and she was and she was like, "Well, it's me." Stab, stab. Wow. I, so that's clever. Very clever. She wasn't wrong. She didn't lie. She was gonna tell him about a plot. It's sort of like how in fourth grade. This girl asked to be my girlfriend by coming up to my door and saying, there's a dead rabbit in the road. (laughs) And I was like, okay. And then I walked out and there was another girl. And that girl said, this first girl would like to be your girlfriend. And I was like, okay. Very a little bit like that. Where's the rabbit? And they were like, "There, there is no rabbit. It was a ruse. And I was like, all right, well, now we're in a relationship. Which reminds me that today's podcast is actually brought to you by my fourth grade girlfriend. My fourth grade girlfriend, I'm doing all of us the favor of not naming her. This podcast is also brought to you by the Chipper Shredder in the Alley. The Chipper Shredder in the Alley, probably doing some important work that I, on the whole, approve of. And of course, today's podcast is also brought to you by Dr. Never Sneezer Scrooge. Dr. Never Sneezer Scrooge, sneezing is never normal. Hank, people sometimes ask me, like, what tattoo would you get if you could only get one tattoo? And I genuinely might get the word <laughs> sneezing is never normal tattooed on my arm. I, I can't I can't stop thinking about it. It's the most powerful <laughs> idea I've ever encountered in my life. Like, it has completely overtaken my consciousness all the time. All, you know how, like, after you have, like, a horrible breakup... Everything uh-huh. reminds you of that person. And you're like opening a car door and you think like, oh, God, I remember the way that this person opened a car door. I'm like that. But with Dr. Never Sneezer Scrooge, like I can't do anything without thinking sneezing is never normal. OK, the podcast is also brought to you by Artemisia II of Caria, the wife and sister of Mausolos and also his successor <laughs> ruling in the Hectomnid dynasty oh. from 353 BCE to 351 BCE. After as not a not a long time, so it's likely that that didn't turn out great. Huh, the golden age. This episode of Dear Hank and John is brought to you by Blue Land. Did you know that uh, about five billion billion? That's I, de- I checked that because that's a lot. Plastic hand soap and cleaning bottles are thrown away every year, and if that's not bad enough, most cleaning formulas are 90% water, which is heavy. We're shipping around all this water using fuel when we don't have to. Every year, Americans throw away 25% more trash from Thanksgiving to New Year. This year, maybe 
turn the New Year's resolution into action that makes a difference by switching to Blueland. Blueland is on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic by reinventing cleaning essentials to be better for you and the planet with the same powerful clean you're used to. It's a simple idea. They have refillable cleaning products that have a nice design. I have them in my home. It looks nice on your counter. You fill the reusable bottles with water, drop in the Blueland tablets, wait for them to dissolve, and you never have to grab bulky, heavy cleaning supplies on your grocery run ever again. And refills, because they're small and you don't have to ship a bunch of water across the country, starts at just $2.25. You can even set up a subscription or buy in bulk for additional savings. From cleaning sprays to hand soap, toilet bowl cleaner, and laundry tablets... Laundry tablets, everybody, you know what I mean. All Blueland products are made with clean ingredients that you can feel good about. Blueland is trusted in over a million homes, including, yeah, mine. Blueland has a special offer for listeners right now. You can get 15% off your first order by going to blueland.com slash dearhank. You won't want to miss it. Blueland.com slash dearhank for 15% off. Again, blueland.com slash dearhank to get 15% off. All right, Hank, before we get to the all-important news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon, we have a question from Ivy who writes, Dear John and Hank, I've been wondering, you know how water condensates onto glasses of cold water in the summer? Sure. Can that also happen with other things like humans? Can water <laughs> condensate onto me? <laughs> Ivy, not the poisonous type. Uh, so I thought I spent a lot of time thinking about this, John, and the yeah. answer is yes. But it in in specific circumstances. So if you are outside and and you have been outside, water it, water can pro- I don't think that water can condense onto you because mm-hmm. you it's hot out there in a situation where there would be condensation. So there's a lot of water in the air because it's warm and it's humid. But you are staying cooler than outside through sweating. Mm. And that mm. and that that is an evaporative cooling process. And so, if you are if there is stuff evaporating from your body, then water is not condensing onto you because the whole and and if you can't evaporate water from your body, water is not. You have a different problem. You have a different problem, which is that like you are going to overheat and it, it's a yeah have a serious problem. But this absolutely can happen. All you have to do is be in a hot, humid place and go into a refrigerator or just a very cold room and then leave and water will condense onto your cold hands. Mm. So, but, but if you are at, I think if you are like acclimated to the outside, I don't think it can happen though. I am willing to be challenged on this because I thought about it a bunch and it was a bit of a brain teaser and water is weird. All I know is that when I worked at steak and shake, sometimes I would go into the freezer, like at the back of the steak and shake. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And I, I would just, it would just, be so wonderfully, astonishingly cold. Yeah. And then for like 45 minutes after that, I could kind of like hold in my heart that coldness. And so even though it was like kind of miserable and gross and humid in Orlando steak and shake 3.30 in the morning on a Wednesday, mm-hmm. I could still like feel that coldness. So I don't know if water was condensating onto me or not, but I could definitely... I, I held on to it somehow. Yeah. Well, yeah. But maybe it was just in my heart. Which reminds me, Hank, that it's time for the news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon. <laughs> How is your heart doing? Oh, I mean, it's just relieved, Hank, because we're still in League One. 
we had our first game in front of fans, 2,000 fans. So it's a slow process of reopening uh, in England. So fans are now being allowed back into uh, stadiums uh, for test events where with relatively small crowds, all the sort of Mm -hmm. protocols are being uh, tested. And for a lot of people, uh, for, you know, around, I would say, 1,900 people, it was their first time uh, in Plow Lane. Uh, Many of them called it the first home game that AFC Wimbledon uh, had played in over 30 years. Wow. Over 10,000 days. And it was a really special day. It was a friendly game against Liverpool's under-23 team. Uh, Wimbledon lost, but that wasn't very important. What was important was fans in the stadium, fans getting to see the seats where their uh, season tickets will be, getting to see the pitch, getting to feel what it's going to be like to play a proper home game Back in Wimbledon for the first time in over 30 years. What an incredible accomplishment by a group of determined, hardworking fans who stuck together through really difficult times and found a way to make this happen. It is such a testament to what people can accomplish when they work together and what communities can do. And I'm just really, really glad to see fans in Plow Lane. And I cannot awesome. wait to be one of them. You will wait. I mean, yes. I guess I can wait because I have to. I will wait until it is safe and both <laughs> governments involved yeah. tell me that I can go. Yeah. But then I will go. Well, in this week in Mars News, we got our first photographs from the Chinese National Space Administration's Zhurong rover. There's a... Uh, it looks look good. There... There is a uh, short video where the rover lander combo was released from the orbiter that it was attached to. And then there's an image of the lander's ramp that's deployed and ready for the rover to roll down it and head onto the surface of Mars. And it suggests that everything has arrived safely and that um, it's got a good uh, good place to drive around it. Looks like a good good area to explore. It will not be too challenging uh, terrain. Do you know, John, that when they first were flying, uh, um, like when when they were first like planning to go to the moon, they were like, we don't know what it's like there. What if like it's just dust all the way down? Yes, I remember that. And, and I mean, not personally, I wasn't alive. Yeah. But I remember reading about it that they thought like it was possible that the lander could land and just like keep falling. Yeah. Because like what like we don't know what it's like. So they you know they sent a few like non manned probes and they all landed, and so it seemed seemed like a good guess that it would work out just fine. It did, uh, but like maybe there would be dust pockets elsewhere. Uh, so terrifying, terrifying. But anyway, it's uh, yeah. Also, the surface of Mars turns out to be pretty good for landing on, which is great. Also on the also in Mars news, the Ingenuity helicopter by the time this comes out should have taken its sixth flight. Um, and that flight will be part of a new phase of that mission where it was gonna it's gonna be scouting different areas and landing in new locations just to take a look around while it still can. Now I wanted Hank, I wanted to ask you, I saw a map of where all the rovers mm-hmm. and et cetera's that have ever landed on Mars landed. Mm-hmm. And it looked like it was pretty well spread out. And it made me wonder, could we land anywhere on Mars? Like could we land at the poles? Do we have a lot of choice when it comes to where to land? Um, we so there are things that we don't want to do. 
So there are there are areas that are really rocky. There are areas that mm. have like really there's a very very steep canyon, which would be amazing to visit, but like maybe some concerns about you know wanting and there are there are slopes that you don't want to land on so that like right, you, you want right. certain amounts of you don't like there are very steep slopes so you don't want to land on a steep slope you want to land in the kansas of mars and you want to land somewhere nice you and want flat. to land somewhere flat and you also want to land somewhere that's not super sandy mm-hmm. so sand dunes can be really bad where you just sort of like the rover wheels get bogged down or they like right it's harder to harder to move across them so like there's a combination of the the slope Plus the level of sand that makes life extra hard for rovers. And also if you're doing a solar mission, solar powered mission, there are some like, so as roughly similar seasons to us. So there are areas that are dark all year round or not all year round, but for, for a long time that you would want to avoid. So your solar powered system doesn't get too cold though. Now we're doing a good job with curiosity and um, perseverance of having these non-solar powered rovers, which could go anywhere. But yeah, the, the reason I ask, yeah, the reason I ask is because it took humans like 249,800 years or whatever to get to the North Pole of Earth. Right. And I wondered how long it's going to take us to get to the North Pole of Mars. Well, there is a, there has, but there is a polar lander. We already did it. Yeah. We already did it. I don't we know. It. <laughs> it's it, not, it's not on it's the, it's not on the pole. It's like not there, but it's close. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's pretty cool though. I mean, it it is weird how fast human technology has changed. I know. I don't know how this story ends, but... I want to do, yeah. Man, I'm excited to find out. I think it'd be fun to, like... I think that we would be good at writing books that that have almost clickbaity titles that end up being deeply informative. So, like, what's the fastest object is, like, a great clickbait title this is like what is it Mm. and it's like well so like what let's go through and in reference to earth because of course like speed turns out to be fake and maybe we can talk a little bit about that but uh in reference in reference to to earth or to the sun or something you just go and like you look at like what the fastest we've gone in any given moment are like so like there's the fastest that a person can go alone and then there's like there's on a horse and then there's in a car and then there's in a plane and then there's space probes and then there's like you know how fast can we make things go that don't have people in them um all of all of this and i think that you could just learn a lot but i guess that's kind of what the anthropocene review book is yeah in a way but without the clickbaity title it has the it least yes. clickbaity title of any book of all time <laughs> because um because people don't know how to spell the title, which is very advantageous for search engine recognition. Recognition. That's what they always say. You want to have a title that right. people cannot spell or uh-huh. pronounce if you want to maximize audience. They all, yeah. I mean, my mom can't even remember the title of my books. She's like, <laughs> she can now. But there's lots. Yeah. Well, I wrote a book called Looking for Alaska that is not about the state. So <laughs> what are we I should, doing? I should retire. We should name our books. I should retire we from should titling. name our books the the biggest explosion of all time. <laughs> I remember there was a great A.M. Holmes book that was called This Book Will Change Your Life. Yeah. And that's 
That's a properly good book title. Yeah. All right, Hank. Well, thank you for potting with me. It's been a pleasure. We're off to record our Patreon-only podcast, This Week in Stuff, where we talk about stuff that made us happy this week. This podcast is edited by Joseph Tuna Medish. It's produced by Rosiana Hals-Rojas and Sheridan Gibson. Our communications coordinator is Julie Bloom. Our editorial assistant is Tabuki Trakravarti. The music you're hearing now and at the beginning of the podcast is by the great Gunnarola. And as they say in our hometown, don't, don't forget, forget to be, be awesome. awesome.